0: You're listening to the Theology Mom Podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Hello and welcome to this Monday afternoon live stream. I hope that by God's grace, you and your family are staying well. Thank you for joining me at this Peculiarly timed live stream. I wanted to get one in uh, before I fly away to Florida in a couple days for the Women in Apologetics conference. So, kind of a last minute thing, but also at the same time, I've been sitting on this for a while. So, gonna finally roll this out here. I'm excited to bring you a new teaching series. Haven't done one in a few months. I've entitled it Is America Under God's Judgment? I think this is gonna be a two part series. Uh, I thought maybe I could just do it in one teaching, but it was starting to turn out to be quite long. And and so I'm gonna just go ahead and break it into two parts because nobody's got time for a three hour teaching. But uh, my point here in making this a teaching series and not just a one minute video <laughs> is to teach all of you a little bit about my process and how I think through um, how I thought through this issue and arrived at my conclusion, rather than just telling me here's telling you here's my conclusion, because that doesn't really help anybody, because you could, you know, find someone else that comes to a different conclusion. But I really want to walk you through my process of how I've arrived at my destination. Um, and this is a question that I get from time to time. It's really connected, though, to a broader question of does God still judge nations the way that he did in, in the Bible times Uh, in the past, I tended to answer this question by saying, you know, I don't think there's really any way to know that for sure. And in recent months, (laughs) I've been rethinking my position, studying it more closely. And I was really prompted to revisit this issue because we kept receiving so many letters at the ministry um, over the last two years in particular, asking for my opinion about things like national sins, national judgment, um, whether our country could be under judgment or something like slavery and that kind of a thing. So as a result, I went back to the scriptures, restudied some things, tried to develop a more robust theology of what I'm calling a theology of nations, Um, you know, because I I know that oftentimes when we think about questions of judgment, we think think of it in individual terms, um, like, you know, who individually is going to heaven or hell, that kind of a thing. But um, I think that if we only think about judgment in that narrow sense, we are missing out on some Key other key points of Scripture that I'm hoping to highlight in this series, uh, where God does in fact send judgment to groups, cities, and nations. So I wanted to share some of those thoughts with you. And uh, some of you might not agree with uh, where I end up on this question and how I answer it, and that's okay. I'm just going to share my thoughts and walk you through my my biblical analysis of my journey where I'm at with it at this point and invite you to to put it to the test and ask the Lord, um, you know, uh, search the scriptures for yourself and and talk to the Lord about that. This series is going to be framed around three distinct points as we answer the question, is America under God's judgment? So we're going to get to the first point, and uh, I think Bob might have a slide for this. Um, Our big idea for this Um, Part one of our series is in the past, God judged nations according to his eternal moral law. So this is really going to be uh, our focus for tonight. I'm going to attempt to argue the case tonight that God judged nations in the past based on their violation of certain universal moral principles. So we're going to look at several examples of God's judgment against nations from Scripture. Then we're going to look closer at the Noahic Covenant. This is a section of the teaching that I think will be new for many people. And then we're going to jump forward into the New Testament and try to connect some of these ideas. So that's a roadmap of, of where we're going. So let's start by looking at some examples of God's judgment against nations in the Old Testament. And there's no better place to start than Genesis. Of course, it's a Christ teaching. We're going to start in Genesis, right? Um, so when we look in Genesis, it doesn't take us too long before we see judgment coming to um, an, a city. Uh, we see in G- Genesis 19, for example, the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we're going to get a little context here. We're actually going to start with a few verses in Genesis chapter 18. and I'm going to be using a new translation today just to expose all of you to it. It's a very fine translation. It's called the New English Translation. might be uh, new for some of you. It's one that uh, we've been trying out a little bit in our family devotions. It's a very fine literal translation, but lesser known than than the ESV or NASB. So I'm going to be doing some of the work today in that uh, translation. So we're going to look at Genesis 18, verses 16 to 25. So the context here is Abraham. And he has these mysterious visitors that show up for him all of a sudden. And so um, it says, when the men got up to leave, they looked out over Sodom. Now, Abraham was walking with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? So this gives us a hint that these are not just ordinary visitors. This is, this is kind of a pre-incarnate Christ, potentially. Um, after all, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth may receive blessing through him. I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then the Lord will give to Abraham what he promised him. So the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so blatant that I must go down and see if they are as wicked as the outcry suggests. If not, I want to know. The two men turned and headed towards Sodom, but Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham approached and said, will you really sweep away the godly along with the wicked? What if there are 50 godly men in the city? Will you really wipe them out and not spare a place for the sake of 50 godly people who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the godly with the wicked, treating the godly and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? So here's the setting. These these visitors from God are coming down and they're saying, you know, we're going to go check out the sins of Sodom. So what were these sins? What were these sins that the Lord... Was so concerned about. In fact, they were so concerning that he sent uh, his messengers to come down and investigate. Ezekiel 16 gives us some uh, additional information. We're just going to look at a couple of verses here verses 49 and 50. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant. Overfed and unconcerned, they did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and d- did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So, why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? What were their specific sins? The cities were overfed, arrogant, they um, did unjust acts toward the poor, and they did detestable things. Now you might be wondering what are these detestable things that they did? It's not really spelled out here. Well, if we turn to Leviticus chapter 18, it gives us those details. This is a the context here for Leviticus 18 is that it's a long list of sexual perversions in many different forms. And it says, the one that we're going to focus on in particular, it says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. This is detestable. This is the same word that is used in Ezekiel. Um, it also talks about do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Um, do not defile yourselves in this way. Because this is, quite frankly, how the nations did things. These were the sins of the nations. These are the exact sins of the nations that God was going to drive out before them. This is how they became defiled. These are the detestable acts that caused God to bring judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we're going to come back to Leviticus 18 a little bit later in the teaching, um, but that's all I'm going to highlight right now in, in that section. Let's look at a few more examples from the Old Testament of God's judgment against the nations. Now, you may recall the book of Jonah. Now, Jonah was God's prophet, but he was a prophet. He was the only prophet that God physically sent to a Gentile nation. He sends him to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian empire and God sends Jonah to pronounce, to warn them and to pronounce judgment. The judgment is coming in 40 days. In fact, I want to put up a, uh, have Bob put up a brief timeline here so that you can see this, so we can keep all of these things in context. So you can see there, uh, Jonah is in the color yellow. And we can see he's one of the earlier prophets. He's a little later than Elijah and Elisha, contemporaneous, kind of um, with, well, he's a little bit, uh, not quite the same time as Amos, um, a little bit contemporary. Yeah, he is contemporaries with Amos. So this is Jonah. And so it's still, um, you know, kind of early on in the history of, of the kingdoms. But, um, you know, he's, he's, he's right there with during the time of Jeroboam II. But he's different than the other prophets like Elijah and Elisha because God sends him to the nations. He sends him to Nineveh. The thing is, is that Jonah doesn't give us a lot of details about what the specific sins were of the Assyrians. There's not like a specific list there. Um, Obviously, we know that they were worshiping other gods, uh, but we don't know too much beyond that. But when we look at history, it's very um, illuminating. The Assyrians engaged in particularly heinous acts of war. In fact, um, Bob's just going to put up really quickly here an article that you can go read on your own from the worldhistory.org website. It's a very simple article. It's for students. It's probably like for middle school students who want to write a paper on Assyrian warfare. Just search for Assyrian warfare. But it's a great example of biblical history intersecting with secular history. And what we learn from from this, and I'm going to have Bob kind of scroll down a little bit here. Yeah. So you can see all, uh, the archers there. There's so much that's known about the Assyrian Empire and uh, how they worshipped their kings. But one of the things that the Assyrians were particularly known for was their their chariot army and also that they would even engage in skinning their um, their war captures alive and putting them on stakes in order to, um, warn and scare all of their other enemies that this too will happen to you. They, they engaged in a type of warfare that was particularly egregious. So, okay, back to Jonah. So as a result of Jonah's preaching, however, the people repent and God postpones his judgment. Um, but then we're going to fast forward 150 years. I'm going to have Bob put the, um, the uh, timeline back up there for a minute, because at this point, God's patience has run out. So he raises up another prophet named Nahum. And I know Nahum's a little bit more of an obscure book, but Nahum is a proclamation of judgment against Assyria. And so it's, as you can see, it's a little bit after Jonah. So even though they repented during the time of Jonah, here we are, you know, 150 years later and they said, Nope, we're going back to our old ways and we're going back to our old practices. So God raises up the prophet Nahum to let them know what judgment is coming against them. So. This time, there's no chance of repentance. There's no chance of God sending a prophet there. God's patience has run out. So we get to Nahum chapter 3. It gives us a little glimpse into some of Assyria's specific sins that God has against them. Okay, we're going to scroll down here a little bit. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies and plunder never without victims. Wow. All right. I think there's a few more verses. We're going to scroll down here a little bit more. Great. All because of the wanton lust of a prostitute. God is comparing Assyria's lust for war and for their acts as that of lust, similar to the lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries. So there's some kind of witchcraft that's happening there in the background who enslaved nations by her prostitution and people by her witchcraft. And again, we're only getting glimpses into what a serious sins are, but we know from history, they engage in a lot of war practices. They engage in capturing people, taking them into slavery, and forced relocations, Uh, they would cut open pregnant women, they would do all all kinds of heinous war, what we now call war crimes. In the mix there was also probably sorcery, worshiping false demon gods, and all of that. We're going to look at one more passage. This is from the book of Amos. Now Amos's dates are again are roughly around the same time as Jonah. They are contemporaries with one another. So we're going to look real quick here at chapters one and two of Amos. If you want a deeper dive into the book of Amos, Monique and I did a three-part series last year on the book of Amos. So you can go check that out in the Theology Mom archives. Um, We had a lot of fun doing that deep dive. We're just going to be looking at chapters one and two this time. And uh, I want to show you first, before we look at that, a quick map of that's relevant for understanding the book of Amos. So Bob's got that up there. And so what we're going to see here is that Amos is going to mention all of these nations that surround Israel and Judah. You can see Israel and Judah right there in the middle. But Amos is going to mention Tyre, Syria, Ammon, Amnon, Moab, Eden all of these places, Gaza, which is part of the Philistine empire, all of these nations that were surrounding Israel, Amos, God raises up Amos to proclaim a judgment over all of these nations. So let's look at Amos chapter one, and we're just going to skim through this really quickly, but it starts off with Amos being raised up as a prophet. And so I'm going to scroll down here a little bit. And he goes right into it where he's going to start pronouncing judgments against the nations because Damascus has committed three crimes, make that four. So Damascus is one of these nations up by Tyre. Okay, let's let's, uh, scroll down a little bit. They ripped through Gilead like threshing sledges with iron teeth. Okay, then Gaza is the next the next one. Gaza again is part of the Philistine empire and they also have committed crimes. They deported whole communities, they sold them as slaves to Edom. So this was forced capturing. This is man snatching, kind of a thing that's condemned in God's law they uh so god says that he, what he's going to do is he's going to set all of their fortresses on fire the fortresses are part of what would protect them he's going to remove their rulers okay let's scroll down here a little bit more the next nation that god is going to condemn is that of tyre and he has a decree of judgment they let's see they sold more, this is another example of selling people to Edom. Um, we're going to go now to Edom. So Edom also has crimes. They not only bought the slaves, but they also have their own set of crimes. They chased down their countrymen with a sword. They wiped out their allies and, um, So notice how all of these are kind of related to war crimes. There's a lot of conversation here about killing, man snatching, um, buying and selling one another's countrymen into slavery. All right, let's keep going here with the Ammonites. The Ammonites also committed crimes. Notice one of their crimes is a ripped open pregnant women so that they could expand their territory. So part of their ca- crimes was capturing land, and part of the way that they did that was by ripping open pregnant women. And so their judgment, again, is that their leaders are gonna be carried off and deported. Okay, that's enough with, with that. So just to summarize here, Damascus was, was guilty of cruelty in warfare. Um, we we just see extreme cruelty throughout all of these these judgments. Um, There's slave trading, man snatching, um, cutting open pregnant women. Th- this is this is really. Um, and if we were continue reading in chapter two, we would see um, desecration of bodies. Uh, these, are, these are egregious sins, but again, these are all the nations that surround Israel. Finally, Obadiah. Obadiah is another prophet that's relevant to this discussion. I'm not going to um, share any scripture about that, but you can read it. It's a very short book. Like Amos, Obadiah also condemns Edom for their sins. So what do I, c- I conclude from all of this data? During the Old Testament period, God expected all the nations, not just Israel, to obey basic moral laws. And if they didn't, they would eventually be destroyed. Because God has made all peoples and all nations, it remains his right to judge them according to his righteous standards. So that's kind of the big, the first movement of. My case is just looking at these examples that yes, in fact, God sent judgments against the nations because of their violations of his holy law. Okay, Allison, thank you for posting all of those links in the comments so that you can get resourced if you want to look at anything uh, more closely. Okay, uh, thank you. Drew is saying that that, uh, he enjoyed our Amos series last year. Thank you so much. We're actually doing, we did a series on Ruth and we're starting a series on Micah right now for our monthly partners. It's going to be an awesome deeper dive into Bible study. Okay, I'm going to check real quick here on Facebook. I think we're okay. All right. Hey, Katrina, glad to see you there in La Mirada, California. Okay, let's get into this next part of the teaching. So If it's true that God judges the nations because of their disobedience to the laws, then that started raising a question in me, well, how did they know to do this? How did they know what God's laws were? Because they weren't in a covenant relationship with God the way that Israel was, and they had all the laws. So... Why would God judge nations for breaking his laws? I thought only Israel had those laws. So this was kind of a, a bit of a question I was I was wrestling with. So here's here's the short answer to, to that question. And then I'm going to expand it here in, in this section of the teaching. From a theological perspective, all people, and by extension, I would say all nations whether they know it or not whether they believe it or not are actually in a covenant relationship with god they are just not in a covenant relationship of god with god through the mosaic covenant or in our case we're in a covenant relationship with god through the new covenant through the abrahamic covenant through the davidic covenant i think all of those are kind of fulfilled in the new covenant Rather, all humans, whether or not they know God, whether or not they know they're in a covenant relationship with God, are in some kind of covenant relationship with God through Adam and Noah. So let me explain what I mean by this, and I'm going to take us um, back to Genesis and just try to build my case here that even though ancient Israel was under the Mosaic Covenant, And the surrounding nations around them were not part of that treaty. The nations were part of a different covenant. But this is not often explained to regular people (laughs) sitting in churches (laughs) about how this actually works. So I'm going to try to do my best to explain it here. That there is a covenant, um, the, the Adamic and the Noahic covenant, particularly the Noahic covenant, that... Applies to all humans, and I and I think, in particular, uh, to nations, has particular application to nations. So, if we were to go back to Genesis chapter one, we would see um, that God gives all humans a creation mandate. He tells them to multiply and fill the earth, increase in number, to rule over the earth, and to subdue it. This is what we call the creation mandate or the dominion mandate, okay? And this is a command that applies to all humanity. It is the foundation of society that we are families, that God created the man and the woman to come together to procreate and create families. This was God's plan. This was God's design to be the foundation for the society that they would build. But we see that after the fall, by the time we get to Genesis 6, just a few pages later, we see that there is a big problem. There is some kind of something wrong, sinful, inappropriate happening in Genesis chapter 6 with marriages. And I'm not going to get into all the details of this passage, but I just want to show you something in Genesis chapter six, the humanity began to multiply, um, on the face of the earth. That's exactly what was supposed to happen. They're fulfilling the creation mandate, but then something goes wrong, uh, the daughters were born to them. The sons of men saw the daughters of humanity were beautiful. Thus they took wives for themselves that they chose. Now, there's a lot of debate as to what this passage means, and I'm not going to get into that. But I think we can all agree that whoever these two groups are that are intermarrying, that wasn't supposed to be happening. Okay. And um, it was a sin. And God's response is, My sin will not remain. In humanity or striving with humanity, since they are mortal, they will remain for 120 more years. So God shortens their lifespans. All right, Bob, can you scroll up a little bit for me there? And the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind had become great on the earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of their minds was only evil all the time. This is a very sad description of what humanity had become in a fairly short amount of time. Whoever these sons of God were, they were not supposed to be marrying the daughters of men. And then sin also had become so rampant that God's describing it that they're just wicked all the time. Every inclination of their their heart is evil all the time. So God's solution to that is a righteous man named Noah. And he commissions Noah to build this ark. It's going to be this faithful remnant that will be uh, saved through this great judgment. And in chapters 6 to 9 of Genesis, we read this story. And when he gets off of the ark... God gives um, Noah some commands, and these commands sound an awful lot like some of the commands that God gave Noah or gave Adam back in chapters 1 and 2. So let's look at those. Genesis chapter 9. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. There's that Creation mandate again. Then it talks about the fear and dread of you will fall on the beasts of the earth. So there's going to be some kind of a change in how humans relate to animals. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave the green plants, I now give you everything. So God is giving him some instructions. About proper eating. You must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood as a human, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from every human being, too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For the image of God, in the image of God, God has made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Now, what do we notice? There are several commands embedded here. Be fruitful, increase, um, that humans are created in the image of God. That's a restatement of Genesis 1. There's going to be a recounting for human blood that gets shed. So this is the, the foundation of the death penalty. And then God says... To Noah and his sons, I will now establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. Dropping down to verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. So God is saying, I'm not going to judge the whole earth this same way. But God's not promising to never judge again. Judgment is coming, and we see multiple judgments. I will establish my covenant with you. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant. I am making between you and me and every living creature with you a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. Or another literal way of translating that would be me and the land. Okay. Uh, verse 16, this will be an everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So here's what we have in the Noahic covenant. We have this covenant is between Noah and his family and all of their descendants. Well, all of their descendants includes everybody. Remember, we haven't met Abraham yet, Okay. Um, we haven't, uh, established Judaism yet. The foundation for Judaism through Abraham doesn't come until Genesis chapter 12. So when God makes this covenant with Noah and his descendants, what he's talking about is for all of humanity. There's no such thing at this point of Jews and Gentiles. There's just humans. Okay. So, When we think about this covenant of the Noahic covenant, we need to think about it as being something that is applicable to all people. So as we see then, if we were to turn the page in Genesis 10 and 11, we start seeing humanity start spreading out and becoming the nations. And as the nations spread, they took the the stipulations of the the covenant that God had made with Adam and with Noah forward. God expected humans to live according to a certain code, namely the creator's eternal moral law. And then we turn the page to Genesis chapter 11. What do we see? Well, we see a nation uh, or a city state possibly, their babel is already engaging in false worship. When we turn the page and we see Genesis chapter 11, we see that their goal was to make this tower to go to the heavens. This is man-made religion. And so it hearkens us back to Cain's um, man-made religion back in Genesis chapter 4. So we know that humans inventing their own religion is almost as old as humanity itself. Um, And we know that this inventing our own religion thing is still a problem even after the flood. And so we see that we don't know what kind of communication Adam had with his sons, but God holds Cain accountable as an individual for his false worship. And then what we're seeing here in Babel is God's condemnation, his judgment against a city state, against a group of people. In fact, I'm going to have Bob put Genesis 11 back up there really quick and scroll down to the kind of the end of the account. There we go. The Lord said, verse 6, it, if, as one people, all sharing a common language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be beyond them. This this harkens me back to the fall in Genesis chapter three, where God says, "Well, now that they've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, well, you know, will anything be too hard for them? So I can't have them live forever. So what does He do?" He throws them out of the garden and then he plants angels there to guard the way to the tree of life. Because the worst thing that could happen is that evil people could access the tree of life and live forever. This verse reminds me of that. It reminds me of, uh, to me, it's an echo of of that condemnation, that judgment in Genesis 3, that now that what they have this one common language, is anything going to be Um, beyond them. And so God's got to kind of break it up. He's got to do some things to send judgment, to break up this common language so that they don't continue to collaborate in their sin quite as easily. The Tower of Babel, in my opinion, is a judgment against a city-state, against a type of nation. And this is when sinners collude to disobey God's laws. Um, So we shouldn't be surprised at all when we turn the pages a few more pages later in Genesis 19, as we saw earlier, with the complete destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There is something that God expected humans to know through their conscience, through general revelation, and through some kind of I think, passing on of these eternal moral laws that that they knew they were not supposed to be participating in. Historically speaking, the Jews have understood this idea of following Gentiles, following parts of God's eternal moral code. Jewish scholars call this the Noahide Laws. So if you want to learn more about this issue, you can go and Google, Google Noahide laws. But just to get you started as to what this is, uh, I'm going to have Bob put a, a slide up on the screen for us summarizing these traditional Jewish Noahide laws. It's a prohibition against murder, prohibition against eating the limb of a live animal, prohibition against idolatry prohibition against blasphemy, prohibitions against sexual immorality, prohibition against theft, and a positive command to set up law courts to enforce these laws. This is what Jewish scholars call the Noahide laws. Sometimes it's called the the Noahic covenant, the rainbow covenant. Jewish scholars sometimes called the covenant of the Gentiles. So when we think about these laws, um, as we said earlier in Genesis chapter 9, we saw a lot of these already about murder and eating, um, you know, not eating uh, animals in a certain kind of a way. <coughs> um, also, if we were to turn the page back to Genesis chapter 8, we would see um, when Noah gets off the ark. What's the first thing he does? He offers a sacrifice. So God had an expectation of how these people were to live, how they were to worship, and that sort of a thing. So in Judaism, Gentiles who follow these basic laws are seen as being righteous. Um, And we actually see this also present and embedded in wording in Exodus and Leviticus. And I'm going to give you a couple, just a couple of examples of that, just so you'll start to be alerted to it. But as God is, was giving Israel the Mosaic law, he also includes every once in a while some instructions that apply to the resident alien. Have you ever heard this phrase? Now, I know that's common today to equivocate the resident alien among you with immigrants to America today. Like there's often this comparison. That is a very bad interpretation, okay? So the resident alien were those Gentiles who chose to live among the Israelites. They were non-Jews who chose to live as neighbors with the Jews. This is called the Ger Toshav, okay? So, for example, um, the Ger Toshav had to abide by s- some commands in the Mosaic law because they were living among the Jews. For example, we see in Exodus chapter 20, we see the laws about the Sabbath. Um, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh it is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. You should not do your work. Now, who does this apply to? It says you shall rest your your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your animals shouldn't even be work shouldn't even work. Or the foreigner residing in your towns. This is what is referred to as the resident alien or the ger toshav. So the Gertoshav was to honor the Sabbath, just like the Jews. Uh, the toshav was not to sacrifice to false gods. It says this in Leviticus chapter 20 or 17, sorry, Leviticus, uh, yeah, Leviticus 17. Uh, they may, they must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to their goat idols, Whom they prostitute themselves, to whom they prostitute themselves, this will be a lasting ordinance for them and generations to come. Say to them, any Israelite or foreigner residing among you who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to the Lord must be cut off from the people of Israel. So there were some uh, thoughts about particular sacrifices they were not to be sacrificing to false gods this included not sacrificing your children to false gods in Leviticus chapter 20 I'm not going to look at that we're just gonna put it out there you can look it up um, and there are um, additional details related to um, not eating there's certain like additional instructions about food issues in Leviticus 17. So the residents al- resident aliens could follow some of these laws if they wanted to such as celebrating Passover. Talks about that in Exodus chapter 20. I'm not going to look at that, but it's there. So even though technically these resident aliens were not part of God's covenant people, they were Gentiles, they received a level of protection and blessing when they walked according to certain commands that God had only for them. They didn't have to obey all the laws, but there were certain laws that God expected them to obey. So by doing that, um, they could live peace peacefully side by side with the Jews. However, they started... Uh, sacrificing to false gods, the Jews were supposed to get rid of them, put them out of the land. Unfortunately, that's not what happened. But that's what they were supposed to do. But it wasn't merely those Gentiles who resided within Israel's boundaries who were expected to obey these basic commands from the Lord. Um, The surrounding nations we're also expected to obey certain commands. Again, not all the commands. Many of the commands were only for the Jews, but there were some that could be applied to the resident alien that lived among the Jews, but also some laws were for the nations. I'm just going to look at Leviticus chapter 18, and I want to, us to notice how it hearkens us back to the Noahic covenant. Leviticus chapter 18, the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them, I am the Lord, your God, you must not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you have been living. You must not do what they do in Canaan (coughs) into which I am about to bring you. You must not walk in their ways in their statutes. You must observe my regulations and walk in my statutes. I am the Lord, your God. So you must keep my statutes, my regulations. Anyone who does not live does, anyone who does so will live. So if you want to live, this is how you live. This is how you walk. Okay. Then it's going to go through a long list of things that you shouldn't do. And Basically, we could summarize these by don't have sex with a close relative. Okay, I'm going to quickly scroll through these. We're going to go back to the bottom there and right there. Yep. So we see also, um, you must not give your children as an offering to Moloch. There again, we have false worship. You must not have sexual relations with a male as one does with a woman. So homosexuality, this is a detestable act. We saw this. Earlier, you must not engage in bestiality, even if it's part of, you know, a temple ritual. Um, This this is false worship. This is not part of what we should be doing. Okay, I'm going to scroll down here to verse 24 and following. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for the nations that I am about to drive out before you have been defiled by these things. So notice here, God is saying the nations that surround you have defiled themselves by living this way. Therefore, the land has become unclean and I have brought punishment for its iniquity upon it. God punished the nations. He punished Canaan because they broke these laws. And Even to the point, I think it's such an interesting description, that the land itself was polluted by the sins of humanity, so that the land has vomited out its inhabitants. What a word picture of God's judgment against the nations. And he warns Israel, you must obey my statutes, my regulations. Do not practice these abominations. Both the native citizen, the Jew, and the resident foreigner in your midst. Again, do not compare resident foreigner with American immigrants. That's not apples to apples, okay? For the people who are in the land before you have done all these abominations— And the land has become unclean so that you do not make the land vomit you out because you defiled it just as it vomited out the nations that were before you. So God's warning him. If you don't want judgment to come against you like it has for these nations, you got to avoid these sins. But to me, lurking in the background here is that these nations should have known. They should have known what they were supposed to be doing okay so this is to me this this shows that god had when when noah and his family got off the ark and he said multiply and fill the earth the assumption behind that was a man and a woman building a family having children um, and ruling and reigning over creation, subduing the earth. Anything that comes against that, any aberration that comes against that, adultery, bestiality, homosexuality, incest, all of these sins all undermine that command from the Noahic covenant. They are all a detestable and a thing before the Lord. They are an abomination. So, These acts, any acts that that violate God's command of the Noahic covenant to multiply and fill the earth, um, this would result potentially in a national sin. If it gets completely out of control, if it becomes so corrupting and penetrating, It even has the potential to corrupt the land, and and the land will vomit you out, you know, as a nation. I think that's just a word picture for God sending his judgment against that nation. So we also see this this condemnation of false worship. Uh, Specifically, uh, we saw there about sacrificing to Moloch. Um, And we can basically assume that includes all false worship all false worship to false gods. Sometimes I call them demon gods because that's all they are, is just demons behind those gods. Again, we have hints in the text that there was this underlying assumption that God is not going to have an infinite amount of patience for evil. But he does seem to assume that these people know what evil is, that they ought to know better when we think about Noah's sacrifice after the flood, he was worshiping God correctly. He wasn't offering a sacrifice to some demon God, okay? So um, when we think about proper worship, again, going back to Cain, going back to the, the Tower of Babel. So these what I'm trying to build here is a case that I think – God judges nations on these very basic laws, these very basic ideas, and I'm gonna have Bob put them up. If we can put that slide up there again, um, as to what the Noahide laws. These are just like some bare minimum facts, bare minimum laws of what. God expects nations to do. So, again, I want to remind us that our big issue tonight, the the thing that we're really looking at is that God judged the nations according to his eternal moral law. These are, I think, the minimum laws. I think that this concept in Jewish theology has been very helpful to me in helping me think through a more robust theology of the nations. Now, there are some Jewish scholars that have expanded these laws to like 30 laws because they would say under the law of idolatry would include things like sorcery, witchcraft, fortune-telling, um, divination and all of that, or under the law against sexual immorality, that would include laws against incest, homosexuality, bestiality, adultery, and that sort of a thing. So you might see Noahide lists that are like expanded to a little bit more to like 30 laws, but but that's how they're getting there. But this is the general, general framework of that. And so I think that. This has been a helpful um, way for me to think about this. Now I'm going to turn to the New Testament. And in the final part of this teaching tonight, we're going to turn to the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, where we see, I think, this idea of the righteous Gentile continuing. In Acts chapter 10, we see Cornelius described as a God-fearing Gentile. He's the first Gentile who receives the Holy Spirit. And I think, well, possibly the Ethiopian eunuch, if he was a Gentile, but that's that's a debated point. Um, but for sure, we know that Cornelius is a Gentile, and he's called and described as a God-fearing Gentile. Um, and I think that this is because Cornelius probably went to the synagogue. He heard the public reading of the scriptures, and he understood and obeyed these very basic, what I'm calling in this teaching, Noahide laws. He had some kind of a picture of what it meant to be a righteous Gentile. He hadn't undergone full conversion. He he wasn't circumcised. He wasn't abiding by all the food laws and the temple practices, but he was abiding by some basic eternal moral principles of righteousness as connected to what I'm calling the the Noahide laws. And so similar to those righteous foreigners who were living in ancient Israel, I think Cornelius likely recognized that some of God's laws applied to him as well. And this makes sense to me because Jewish synagogues would have been scattered throughout the ancient Mediterranean world. So there would have been opportunities for many Gentiles to hear God's word read in those synagogues. And then when the Holy Spirit comes over Cornelius, what's amazing about it is that God treats Cornelius just as he did the Jews. This is an incredible and pivotal moment in salvation history, Jesus is now giving the same Holy Spirit to Gentiles as he did to the Jews on Pentecost. So then as we see as Paul travels to, to synagogues throughout the, the Roman Empire, it was not uncommon for him to address both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. And you can see examples of that in Acts 13 and Acts 17. So this creates a conundrum of, well, wait a minute. If Gentiles have the same Holy Spirit that the Jews do, we get to Acts 15 and there's this question of, now we've got to figure out what's, what's happening here. Like, Do Gentiles need to become Jews in order to become full Christians? Or are they full Christians because they have the Holy Spirit? And this is really what I think um, is happening in Acts chapter 15. But when they write the letter, um, when the the leaders of the church write the letter and they come to a decision, I want to look real briefly at these verses in Acts chapter 15 says this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to, notice the, the stipulations here, abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, meat strength from strangled animals and blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Notice how this wording is kind of similar to the Noahide covenant. It's similar stipulations. And why did they think that um, they were on good ground in affirming certain basic laws, telling them this is kind of how you live a holy life? Because the law was read in the synagogues. So they said, you know, there is some kind of operational understanding out there for people who want to know god that they can know that there are these basic eternal moral principles the apostles are basically saying that the gentiles they are going to come into the covenant the same ways as the jews everybody comes to the messiah the same way by repentance believing in jesus as the messiah water baptism holy spirit and they are to obey the same eternal moral laws that they always have. Why? Because the, the the mosaic covenant has now been completely replaced by the new covenant. So there's no more temple. There's no more priests. There's no more sacrifices. There there's 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 none of those things. The so the mosaic law has been completely replaced by the by the new covenant. Um. And, and and also fulfilled in Jesus. But there are eternal moral laws of God that remain, that, that come from his character of justice. And that that's why we hear throughout the epistles, Paul saying things like don't steal, um, don't lie to your neighbor, um, things like don't commit sexual immorality he's just restating all of these eternal moral principles that these people even as gentiles should have some vague fam- familiarity with of knowing what's right and wrong. And so when we hear Paul preach on Acts in Acts 17, he seems to assume that these gentiles already have some kind of basic knowledge of the creator, the first humans, the migration of hu- early humanity. And then he he just pro- clearly proclaims there's one true God, calls them to repent of their sins because of the proof of, of God's existence being displayed through the resurrection of Jesus. A- and that's it. And and so my thought at this point is that yes, God judges, has judged the nations in the past. But that there are these, these basic eternal principles that God holds us accountable to that is the basis for that judgment of nations. And if we were to turn to the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 17, if we turn to the end of the story, we would see God's ultimate and final judgment, the fall on the nations that make war against the lamb. Um, I don't, I don't think it's any coincidence that revelation takes us back to Babylon. It calls the, you know, the, the whore of Babylon and, and that it's taking us back to Babel. It's taking us back to the tower of Babel. It's, it's, it's saying this is the final destruction for nations that disobey me, that worship false gods and, um, persecute my people, and engage in gross um, sins. So what do I c- conclude from all of this? Well, in my opinion, from Genesis to Revelation, we see that God repeatedly judges nations when they violate his holy laws. It's repeated over and over from cover to cover. And there seems to be this this basic foundation that god expects individuals cities and nations to adhere to and when nations become so corrupt and they are so egregious in disobeying these basic principles god will destroy them he will take them out this final point here is that under the old covenant israel was supposed to be a priestly nation They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, to the nations that surrounded them, of this is what holy living looks like. And God in his grace even made a provision for those Gentiles who lived among the Jews so that they could worship and serve God without becoming full Jews. They could go to the temple and worship God in the place designated for them. But God's vision in Micah chapter four, is that eventually what would happen is that the nations would all look to Jerusalem and all um, obey God and obey God's laws because of the law that comes through the Jews. God's plan today is for his people to go out into all the world and preach the gospel to disciple the nations, as it says in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. God's plan is that the the vision in Micah chapter 4, that the nations would all come to worship the Lord and obey the Most High God, that is what Jesus has sent us out to do is to disciple the nations. And so that now that the the gospel has gone out to all the earth, um, all those who are part of God's true universal global church, now we are to act as a priestly nation to non-Christians we who have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, we can become a change agent to the world to be a light in dark places. But what happens when salt loses its saltiness? Jesus says it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown on a pile of manure. May we, as God's people, be found faithful. May we not become the prostitute like ancient Israel. May we actually live up to God's true vision for us, that we would disciple the nations, that we would be found faithful, that we would be, worst case scenario, among the faithful remnant in and among corrupt nations. May we not become the prostitute that Israel and Judah become became. Okay, with that, I'm going to put a bookmark right there for now. I'm going to pick it up in a few weeks after the Women in Apologetics Conference. I want to thank you so much for watching. Thank you for your support. Because of our donors, it makes streams like this possible. please, prayerfully consider supporting the ministry you can just go to center for biblical Unity.com, click on that donate now button and please help us um, keep these quality resources coming to you make sure to share the show good night and god bless be sure to follow theology mom on facebook and like comment and subscribe on youtube don't forget to catch krista next week For more Theology Fun on Theology Mom and All the Things. Thanks for listening.